last night we talked about uh, the causes for delusion or addressable causes, something you can deal with in a practical way because to deal with your own misunderstandings about things, what's missing, you can't really see what's missing. It's like having one eye, you don't really notice that there's an absence of depth perception. So you have to use other methods to do that. And so typically, primarily the five hindrances, but the two dominant ones, anger and desire. That you can see. It's in your face. You can know when you're angry. You can know when you're in a condition of lack. So another word for desire is lack. Feeling that I'm not complete now. I need something and then I'll be happy or I will be better. So desire is just another way of talking about lack. Those are very important to understand the food relationship between anger and desire and our lack of enlightenment, our misunderstanding about our relationship to realities. This is uh, a very important, what's called dependent origination, and you won't find it on the standard version of dependent origination. There's It's usually like a clock, you know, and at midnight is this thing called avijja, or ignorance. And then there's decision-making and consciousness, etc. Going all the way around, they all have things that they're dependent on. So the question arises, what is ignorance dependent on? And it's not 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock doesn't condition the arising of ignorance. 11 o'clock is death. Death doesn't condition the arising of ignorance. What does? Fortunately, there's another sutta, so you don't have to guess. (laughs) There's another few in the sequence before ignorance, and that which conditions the arising of ignorance are the hindrances, the five hindrances. You'll hear this taught quite frequently. Dependent origination, usually it's the little link between contact and craving, and uh, it's where you sever it, this circle of conditioning. You sever it at that link. That's mostly the way they talk about it, usually insight practices, vipassana type courses and so forth. But I just find it much more practical and useful to just keep the hindrances in mind, the five hindrances. There is endless opportunities for practice and it will change you. It will change you without you trying to change. You are unwittingly changing yourself by interrupting, dismissing, preventing, replacing, discouraging the five hindrances. That's how you are changing yourself, and you will get handed your changes in a very strange way. Let me describe the opposite, where you don't try to deal with your anger. You don't try to deal with your desires or your agitations or anything. You just roll along with them, and then one day you get handed some surprising results. You do something. You step over a line. You are as surprised as everybody else about what you just did. 
road rage. You, why did you smash that man's windshield? Well, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> You've been practicing. You've been feeding your ignorance. Ignorance and this indulgence in anger and unmitigated, unreflective anger and craving and agitation and surrendering to sloth and heaviness and getting caught in uh, impossible doubt structures. This is the roots of ignorance and it will show. It will show in your actions, it will show in your speech, and it will show in your motivations about life. It will catch up to you and you will feel in the grip of it. You're actually in the grip of what's been formed and you are nothing but forms. No, you are nothing but forming. It's tricky to talk about flowing processes because the language and the way we articulate English is about nouns and verbs and adjectives, etc. But we talk about ourselves quite often in terms of nouns, of things, of solid entities traveling through time. But that's why we're so perplexed because none of it reflects reality. The actual reality is all verbs. You know that saying about the old idea of the earth is flat and there's what's it sitting on? Turtles. And then what's the turtle sitting on? Oh, it's turtles all the way down. It's actually in oneself, it's verbs all the way down. There are no things in there. They're just verbs, just flows, just processes. And they can be shaped in any direction. They're rivers of events. But if you keep placing things in that flowing river, you're going to get classical patterns coming up. It's going to get less and less happy because you are feeding it with the five hindrances. And it tends to decline. It goes down. Well-being and clarity decrease. But every now and then you get a startling, it's kind of like going down rapids in a canoe. Every now and then you drop significantly, and then maybe it's flat for a while, and then you drop significantly. This is the mystery of who you become, and it's kind of plateaus where you suddenly realize you're not who you were. Now this can happen in either direction. It can happen in the negative direction, or it can happen in the positive direction. But how do you make it happen in the positive? Well, how do you make it happen in the negative direction? Just keep up with those hindrances. Keep on practicing. Don't give up. <laughs> Study till two in the morning with that anger thing, you know. Nurse a grudge. Nurse a grudge. <laughs> it's like weightlifting. You'll become extraordinarily strong and monstrous. <laughs> and the opposite. If you feed in non-anger, if you prevent anger, if all of these hindrances, you will have results. You will become another person. You've got a choice. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Which one do you want? <laughs> Depends which one you feed. So this is the direct process of transformation. It is this process of just Starve those things. Starve this avija. Starve this declining process. Take the energy out. And the energy is the hindrances. 
you remove these. I was thinking, as I'm going along here, I, a little image came into my mind, and this was from a, a book by Oliver Sacks, the neurologist. He had a patient that he described, and this guy had been a carpenter most of his life, but he had some neurological problems, and he had a weird thing. He would stand like leaning over like this, and it was very disturbing to talk to him because he was he would lean like... <laughs> the other patients didn't appreciate this at all. It was like they couldn't figure out whether they're hallucinating or is it him. <laughs> and Sachs said to him, you know, why are you leaning like that? And he said, I'm not leaning. Yes, you are leaning. Uh, look in a mirror. Look, look at, look at. And he, he was quite surprised to see in the mirror that he was leaning like this. So uh, Sachs really didn't know what to suggest for that, other than to tell him, you know, because as long as he could see himself in a mirror, he could correct it. But when, the moment he stepped away from the mirror, he would stand on an angle because it felt like he's standing straight up. But having been a carpenter. He was very familiar with uh, correcting <laughs> slanting objects very nicely. So he got little uh, water levels on, taped them onto his glasses. <laughs> so he could see when he was standing upright, on the, the levels were right there in front of his eyes. So he could keep himself absolutely on the level. <laughs> but he couldn't intuit that. He could just see it. Now, that's an example of this failure to understand that we are being fed the wrong information, that we have an incorrect map. That is a, the nature of avijja. It doesn't feel like we're that. But the other data tells you that you are off. And the other data, in this case, the level, is the awareness of the five hindrances. As last night I was talking about, I must be, I, I'm angry, therefore I am deluded. That's a little variation on Descartes, I think, therefore I am. I'm angry, therefore I'm deluded. So we have to work with them. In one of the interviews, somebody asked me a question about, when you talked about desire the other night, what did you mean by exactly where, what are you, what's the no desire or what desire and this desire? And I was... Thanks for reminding me of that because I had intended to talk about that. These words that we use commonly in Buddhism, desire, attachment, clinging, all of these words are not, not necessarily clear what exactly anybody means. These are translations of Pali words and that the Pali words might have been very carefully defined and probably the Buddha has given metaphors and images and similes to help you understand what he means by that, because these words are bandied around all the time in English, and what does it mean? Craving. Do you feel like, are you craving for, you think, I'm craving peanut butter, you know, but my craving is supposed to be driving me through existence. Craving is driving me through existence, but I don't feel like I'm craving anything right now. Certainly not peanut butter, maybe later, but I'm craving, I'm craving something. That's supposed to be the, the, the second noble truth. Uh, the, the cause of suffering is this craving, or is it clinging? Do I, you feel like you're clinging to something? It's, it's a bit mysterious. What do you mean by that? And what do we mean by desire? So th these words uh, really need to be carefully reflected on. The hindrance of desire. So what is meant there? We actually need a form of desire 
And that is an aspiration for a feeling of completion and fulfillment and fullness. And notice that what I said, the word desire is another way of describing lack. So what the Buddha calls, he gives a simile, going into debt. That a person who has desire has to actually keep paying off a debt. They are filling a hole or something less than zero. They're actually in a negative condition. So that's the feeling of desire. The feeling that you're lacking something. You have to keep paying it off. The Buddha is saying is like, when you arrive at a state of contentment, and maybe for an hour or a day, or you're feeling content in your life and everything, it's quite an interesting experience to say, you know. It feels like paying off last payment on a mortgage or a loan or a credit card. It just feels like put the last thing, I don't owe anything anymore. I'm not in debt. The inner feeling of this is a feeling that I'm lacking something. I'm going to have to go and get something that reduces that sense of lack, again, at least for a few hours. I'm going to have to flick on a television or I'm going to have to go out to eat or I have to just get up and get some ice cream and because I'm just feeling this sense of lack. And I need relief from this. But of course, this does not give you relief. You haven't diagnosed the central issue of why you have to eat ice cream at one in the morning. This is the sense of the problem with desire. There are normal uh, processes of life. We have to go out to work and so forth. It's not necessarily that that creates a sense of lack in you. The monks are always doing things. The Buddha is able to do practical matters. He's active. He's practical. He deals with situations. He moves around. He travels. But theoretically, he's free of craving, of desire. He's not in debt. You don't really need to be in debt to walk across a room, to get to the other side of a room. You don't need to be in debt. You don't need to be unfulfilled until you manage to arrive at the other side of the room. You know, when you're walking down the street, you're going to work, you get out of your car, you go into the house. There's, there's a lot of motivation there. You are intent on going there, but there's no sense of lack. So the, the type of desire situation we're talking about is an inspection of oneself in the sense of, that I feel that I am not complete and I have a few different things that I'm going to try to give myself a temporary relief from this sense of lack. So that's uh, something that one deals with in attempting to reduce the hindrances and reduce the cycle of feedback. It's a debt that can't be paid off if you don't reduce this experience of lack. And that's, part of that is done by just dismissing, replacing. So replacing a sense of lack with something else that allows the sense of incompletion to fall away. When you temporarily suspend that, then you're not feeding that particular cycle. And you might find out that you just, things that you used to really like and want, mysteriously, you actually mysteriously don't want it anymore. You may not realize it yet. And then you go and you get the thing and you think, you know, I used to like this. <laughs> it's funny. I don't, I don't feel this. One thing I did in my early life, 
uh, now you're waiting for a juicy story, but it's not that juicy. Um, I read a lot, <laughs> a lot of books. It was my secret addiction. <laughs> Although I don't think of myself as addicted to reading books, you know, because they weren't comics or anything like that. They were books on philosophy, <laughs> the great novels and, and so forth, trying to feeling that I should educate myself. And I also enjoyed reading these things. And I would, uh, I would need a book, you know, and I don't think I realized that until I didn't have a book. And then I thought I need a book, <laughs> but as time went by and I started meditating, one of my little things to combine exercise and reading was to go for long walks in the city I lived in, which was Toronto at that time. I wasn't a monk at this time. I'd go for long walks, like 10 miles, and um, stop at bookstores along the way and, and read in installments. <laughs> the same book would you know, be in this next bookstore, so I'd read up to page 10, and then I'd go for another mile and so, and then I'd go in and read starting at page 10 the next. I'm letting you in on a deep secret there. So. And then I'd go to the library and so forth, lots of free books. I bought them from time to time as well, but um, this was my, uh, one of the sort of beautiful parts of life for me was, you know, a walk and reading and this and stuff and, you know, but as I began to meditate and quite a bit, you know, I had a mysterious experience. I would go for the walk and I would go into the bookstore and I would stand kind of looking for that book that would somehow always appear before. And I, none of them would jump out of the shelf into my hand. And I would be mystified by this. I would think, hmm, there's no, no good selection here. I'll go, I'll go on another mile, maybe go to the next bookstore. Maybe somebody will jump out there. Next bookstore, all kinds of books. No, nothing jumps out. Mystifying. I would go in there fully believing that I am a guy that likes to read and I enjoy reading and I, I'm not that guy anymore. I just didn't really care. <laughs> that thing fell away. And what I wasn't aware of before was that it was because that reduced the sense of lack. But as the sense of lack reduced, I didn't need to reduce the sense of lack. It's a mysterious feeling. You suddenly get handed this. This is these processes are happening without you knowing what's what's going to happen. But as you you begin to fill up, the things that you needed to fill up with before become less meaningful, become less attractive, etc. And that's just the way it goes. It's kind of mystifying and, and quite often you don't approve even of the fact that you're getting out of debt. It's like a gambler who doesn't want to gamble. He might, the, might not even approve of the fact that he just doesn't want to gamble anymore. <laughs> These things happen and it's not the sort of celebration of the world. The world kind of celebrates your cravings, your desires, your entanglements. They form whole clubs around it, like, you know, whatever, literary societies or, or wine-tasting societies or whatever. They, they celebrate 
your cravings, your fixations. And when they fall away, it's a, it's a kind of a weird thing. It's because it's not the general voice of approval of, of society, etc. I mean, a certain ones like drug addictions and so forth, there's a, there's a strong voice which wants you to stop doing that. Although your particular circle of friends probably doesn't want you to stop doing that. They have no intention of, they, they love it. <laughs> so you got two voices going on there. One, one is wiser and then one is more foolish. But this process, this is how the process happens. You just put in the causes. You don't really have to even want the results. But if you put in these causes, you will get that type of result. And it will work in both ways. I can guarantee you will get spectacular negative results if you just indulge your hindrances. You won't even have to want to get bad results. You will get them. <laughs> and the opposite. If you just put in the causes of this careful delineation of what the hindrances are, what they feel like, what their texture is, the se sensation and feeling of them, and then have some tactics and techniques for preventing, and if they arise, removing, if you have those techniques. And we will be talking and reviewing those techniques. The other thing is, why do the hindrances arise? If I could not have to replace them, or not have to wrestle with them, it'd be better. So I have to inquire, why is this happening? And so, in the again, in dependent origination, the part that, you, that is never shown on the chart, there is a cause for the arising of the hindrances. There is a cause for that, and it's called unwise attention. So there are two types of attention that produce the, encourage the rising of the hindrances. The first one is unwise attention to the fault is the cause, the root cause of anger. Unwise attention to the beautiful is the root cause of desire. And notice it's unwise attention. It's a distorted, partial attention. It is attending to only one aspect of the object, excluding other parts. It's giving unwise attention to one feature of the object. It's very easy to understand with anger. Anger, you attend to the fault. Now, this is what very, very close to the inner experience of, of so many people, their own fault. Now, the reason why is there's a, a tremendous preponderance of ill will towards oneself, harsh, critical, inner voices towards oneself in this particular society. That is because one is attending unwisely to what you think is your fault. It's a fault in you. And you are glaring at this thing and excluding the bigger picture of these things. You are unwisely attending to an aspect of yourself. And the resultant is an emotion. You will know. How do you know it's unwise attention to the fault? Because you're angry with yourself. You are irritated with yourself. You might even hate yourself. That's how you know that you're crazy. <laughs> we could say, yes, unwise attention is a euphemism for 
What are you, nuts? You know, why would you do this to yourself? So, unwise attention to the fault is, again, let's just make it more clinical. So, it's just the what happens when you shine a blue light on something. Blue lights tend to make things look dead. It just brings out the deathly side of things, the ugly side of things. Photographing food, for instance, you know, food photographs are always done under red light. It's it's so delicious. It looks delicious. Just try photographing food under blue light because, you know, blue, like maggots and um, mold, moldy this and moldy that and blue and dead and stuff like that, blue meat, yeah, Mm. very unappetizing. So that's what you're doing when you look at yourself. You're looking in your inner life through a blue lens. And it is not reality. It's not. It's a highly distorted version of reality focused exclusively on the, the death element. Unwise attention to the beautiful is the opposite. It's exactly that. It's the pink glasses, the rose-colored glasses. Do you know about this thing called the red light district? (laughs) What is that about? And there really are red lights. And red lights make things look appetizing. The ladies of the evening in the red light district are hanging out under red lights because the red lights make a human look appetizing. Not to eat. If you want to clear up a red light district. Just put blue lights in. (laughs) All the business will just instantly fall away. Yeah. So this is what, you know, we're shifting back and forth. Have you ever had a love-hate relationship? You know, it's just different lenses being put on. And everything changes. When you put a different filter on, everything changes. The perception changes. Everything changes. And this is like when you're angry at somebody and you see their faults. Anger is interesting. It's parallel to intelligence. Why you get good marks in school is that you can pay attention. You know, the the kids, the famous lack of ability to pay attention, ADHD sort of thing, is why you don't get good marks. But the kid that doesn't have the ADHD is considered intelligent. It's just another word for the ability to sustain attention on an object. It's interesting that... Anger has the same capacity. It is the ability to sustain attention unwisely on an object. It has the same capacity. So you can have a, these, you know, these feuds, the McCoys and the whatever they are, the, these feuds, they go on for generations. The individuals in there probably can't sustain the attention enough to learn how to read, but they can sustain a hate feud with a, with the neighboring hillbillies for three generations. It's amazing how that the intense focus of unwise attention on the fault. And so it has a certain intelligence. You can describe the fault too. So that's what happens when you are angry and you, you're in an angry confrontation with somebody. You articulate their faults in a most eloquent and articulate way, very, very penetrating. 
Yes, you make the best speech you ever regretted. <laughs> because once that unwise attention falls away and you start to have the more expanded attention of wisdom and goodwill, you see much, much larger and more complex picture. And you suddenly realize, what was I saying? That's not true. That was a highly distorted but virtuosic performance. <laughs> I did nail the faults, but it's only a very partial and distorted picture of the real events because they're actually wonderful. Give me a hug. <laughs> I'm sorry I said that. What was I thinking? That's ridiculous. Notice the shift in perception there. Eh? The other thing is when you're dwelling on, the, you see the anger and the anger increases the blue filter. You're dwelling on the faults. Just, you got to articulate this. I am dwelling on the faults. I am unwisely attending to the fault. How do I know it's unwise? Because it's accompanied by anger or aversion or just even irritation or outright hatred whether it's my fault or anybody else's fault or the fault in a glass or in a piece of music or whatever, if it's accompanied by negativity and ill will, it's unwise, it's distorted, it's delusional. It's not how it really is because it's funding and promoting your hindrance, this psychic irritant. You are experiencing an unpleasant, painful experience painful experience. If you have a child, little child, they do all kinds of things, don't they? They spit up their food and they crap in their diapers and stuff like this, but mommy doesn't mind because that's what kids do. It's my kid, you know. When it's your child, even the diapers don't smell so bad. When it's somebody else's kid, it stinks. It's the filter of love. You are wisely attending to the fault. The child's diapers, are, it is a fault. It is a problem. The kid is picking their nose in, in public. The mother doesn't just let them do that because they love them. Because they love them, they say, Now, dear, don't put your finger up your nose. That's not elegant behavior. No, no, nobody likes that. You know, That's not the way it's done. But you don't, you're not angry with them for that. It's a fault. It's a fault. But you are wisely attending to the fault. That is with goodwill. Appropriate attention to the fault, and it's not accompanied by a hostile feeling. Now, apply that to yourself, this business of self-negativity. You're not attending with goodwill. It's not that you don't have any faults or there's nothing that needs to be improved about you. Lots of stuff. You attend with wisdom, wisely attending. There's no, there's no side effect of ill will or negative, harsh emotion. It's goodwill, and it's just a creative project. It's like a work of art. You're not angry at your sketch. You're just thinking, no, I think I got the nose a little wrong there. I just Let me just work on that. You're changing that. It's not with hostility, and it's not with detestation of faults. It's with a context and an interest in increasing well-being and happiness. 
But the emotion that increases well-being and happiness is well-being and happiness, not hatred or anger or negativity. So this is how we start to see how we head off the, the hindrances. I'm, I'm attending unwisely. I'm focusing exclusively on the fall. I'm starting to have to enter into a dialogue about why it's... And of course it's very convincing. The deficit, the defect is utterly convincing. And perhaps it's true, but it's accompanied by unwise attention. So that's why it is the source, the food, the creator of the resultant, which is this hostility, or the opposite in the case of desire. And desire is, I suddenly have induced a sense of lack and incompletion in myself. If I don't get that thing, I won't be happy, meaning I won't be content until I get that thing. Now, you've just done that to yourself by attending unwisely to the beautiful aspect of it. There are beautiful things, all kinds of things. They're beautiful and distorted and all kinds of things like that. Fine. But to induce a sense of incompletion in yourself or lack because of that is unwise. And the feeling is lack of contentment. And so that's the mark that I'm attending unwisely to this. If attending wisely, you can see beauty without wanting it or wanting to possess it or wanting to eat it. <laughs> there is good ice cream out there, but I've had enough ice cream, so I don't need to eat it. It's good ice cream, but... And I can tell you, you know, you can be a gourmand. You can have fine tastes in all kinds of things, but you don't feel incomplete without it. You may be a feeling of appreciation for the creator of it or whatever it is, but that's not a sense of deficit. You go around and function with motivations, but are you in a state of lack? Are you creating, are you putting in causes for future lack, for future deprivation? Oh, it's a little late, so um, I will leave it for tonight.